This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This week's episode is brought to you by USA Network's award-winning drama series, Mr. Robot, starring Rami Malek and Christian Slater in what critics call one of the decade's signature prestige dramas, now eligible for your Golden Globe and SAG consideration. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in crime, THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's shaking? I'm just starving myself getting ready for Thanksgiving. How about you, Leslie? Dude, bring me the break. I need it. I need the break. And also, I'm just so happy that Mercury is finally out of retrograde, thankfully, because Julia Roberts is Harriet Tubman. Oh, that was something that some idiot said in a meeting 15 years ago. I'm I'm not skeptical because we've all seen enough stupid stuff in Hollywood to know that probably some idiot did say that, but let's let's not make it seem as if that's a thing that nearly happened. It's a thing that oof. some idiot said in a meeting. <laughs> yeah, oof. Well, we've got a big show heading into the holiday, and as an early note, we will be taking Thanksgiving week off and returning December 6th. Dan, you got big plans for Turkey Day? Apparently not podcasting. How about you? Not podcasting. Sleeping. Sounds good. Well, let's dive right into headlines. What do you say? Leading off the week in series orders, history's Viking sequel Valhalla has moved to Netflix. And in a rare Netflix development deal, the streamer is teaming with Robert Town and David Fincher for a Chinatown prequel series. Hmm. I'm not sure how to feel about that yet. On the renewal front, Showtime has picked up Jesus and Mero for a second season. You should be watching it if you're not. And Amazon has picked up a second season of the cool, trippy, somewhat disturbing, rotoscoped, not really comedy, not really drama, Undone, which you also should be watching if you're not. And Hulu announced that the third season of Marvel's Runaways would be its last. Over in casting news, Holly Hunter will star opposite Ted Danson in NBC's mayoral comedy from 30 Rock creators Tina Fey and Robert Carlock. I'm there. Yeah, sign me up for that. Speaking of big castings, Harrison Ford is headed to TV and will make his series regular debut in a series based on the 2004 true crime docuseries The Staircase for Annapurna. The drama is being shopped to networks and streaming services, but Dan is Harrison Ford doing TV. Someone big is going to pay a lot of money for this. They are. I'm also very intrigued by the casting of Harrison Ford in the lead in The Staircase, which, while not necessarily age correct, is definitely intriguing. Yeah, and lastly, DC Universe drama series Stargirl has landed a rare streaming to linear TV window and will air on the CW. Episodes will be available weekly on the CW the day after they debut on the streaming platform. And what's more, all of those episodes will remain on the CW's digital and free apps, ad-supported apps, the day after that they air on the CW, meaning you don't have to pay a subscription fee to DC Universe to watch Stargirl. This is just the latest undoing of whatever is left of DC Universe, Dan. Yeah, the, the question of how long DC Universe is going to last after there's another place for most of the content to go, namely a little streaming service we might have mentioned before called HBO Max, is a very real question. And I, I feel like we are getting one step closer every day to DCU just becoming another tab in the HBO Max portfolio, which is not necessarily the worst place for it. But it, if you want, it should be. It's a great totally. idea. I, th I think so, too. I think it's a much more justifiable way of putting that content out there, getting people to pay for it, but also giving them other things 
in addition. If you're curious, though, about one of the better shows to premiere on DC Universe, uh, that being this week's upcoming Harley Quinn, you should check out our interview from last week's podcast with Justin Halpern and Patrick Schumacher, the show's showrunners. It's a good chat. Yeah. And speaking of DCU, you know, HBO Max has already signed a, a dual window for Doom Patrol. So it's going to air on both DC Universe and HBO Max. So yeah, the undoing of that platform is, is I think, just beginning. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five topics. Number one. Our first topic this week... Well, you know we like to talk about the biggest issues in Hollywood. We like to talk about overall deals. We and like streaming to... wars. Oh, God, we love talking about the and streaming wars. And overall deals. And did you already say overall deals? I think I did. I don't know. I'm you... peak TV. Indeed. Streaming wars. We like to talk about the important things. So this week, we are starting off with, I would say, probably the biggest little topic in the television universe. Little it's, topic. I see what you did there. I'm, I'm very tricky here. It's the character the internet can't stop talking about. And if you have not seen The Mandalorian yet, this is your spoiler warning. Skip ahead to the next segment. Oh, yeah. We are starting this week talking about... Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda. Joining us this week is THR's resident Star Wars guru and Heat Vision senior editor, my friend, the amazing Aaron Couch. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you for having me. This is great. I think the first question probably is, do you remember the first time you experienced, the first time you met Baby Yoda? Yeah, I... I, I... <laughs> I woke up early to watch the first episode of Mandalorian. Disney Plus wasn't working. I finally got it. And, you know, I was like, you know, I'd, I'd already seen so much of it before. But the one thing they kept back from me was Baby Yoda. And I remember actually being shocked, surprised in a way that I wasn't expecting. I thought, ah, whatever. This is just another show. And then I melted like most of the people did. <laughs> yeah, it was just like acuteness overload. But like, you know, obviously, he, you know, little Yoda is very, very cute and very charming. And everyone is like, he, it's just literally all over my Twitter feed. It's, it's kind of amazing. But aside from all that, can you just break down why everyone is so excited about the introduction of this character and what that means in the larger world of Star Wars? And, you know, really two things. One, people are just so happy to not be fighting about something about Star Wars. This is literally the only thing that people all agree is great, which doesn't happen anymore. So, but Yeah, especially after the whole Benioff and Weiss fiasco. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, but beyond that, every single thing in Star Wars has been explained to death. You know, the random guy at the, you know, cantina has a novel about him. But we don't know where Yoda is from, what his planet is. We don't know what his species is called. That's something. That's like one of the few things George Lucas actually kept back and didn't explore. So we never thought we'd really get this, you know? So it's actually one of the only things that can be new about Star Wars. So much of what we've seen in Star Wars has been, you know, kind of rehash of what we've already seen. So this, is, this actually feels like it's moving things forward. And The Mandalorian, we didn't really expect that because it's a prequel. Oh, another prequel, you know? Okay, great. But they're actually doing something new, which is cool. Do you have personal theories regarding what or who Baby Yoda actually is and how he fits into this as a universe? You know, people have pointed out that Baby Yoda is the same age, was born in the same year as Anakin Skywalker. You know, and people think maybe the Emperor brought forth Anakin Skywalker through midi-chlorines. Maybe he did the same through thing. Through what? Midi-chlorines. Oh, come on. You know? <laughs> did you not see the prequels, Leslie? Gee I did, whiz. but come on. That's not a word that I use. <laughs> Now, what if the Emperor also brought forth Baby Yoda and we didn't know this until now, you know, because this is, uh, you know, he's Baby Yoda is 50 years old. They age slowly. So I don't know. Maybe this uh, Anakin was the dark. This is the light. Who knows? Yeah. Well, more importantly, and I say that sarcastically, of course, um, where can, where can the kids get importance their... <laughs> comes in many different shapes and sizes i love Clearly. this segment so much already dan but like, i like it's leading off the podcast it's the most important news well, in tv and look, this we've week. got a huge showwriter interview coming up this week that everybody knows but we wanted to start things off light anyway especially heading into the holiday but look it we're this is this episode is going to be out for two weeks you know over thanksgiving where can the kids buy their baby yoda merch is I mean, I, I'm told that it's coming, but like the fact that they weren't that Disney didn't have like Funko Pops and all this other stuff ready seems kind of a big miss so far. Well, Favreau talked about how, you know, usually, you know, the new Iron Man time travel suit that leaks because, oh, it's in a stupid toy catalog three months before Endgame. Favreau talked about they were very careful. We're not leaking this through, you know, through uh, through the toy catalog. So that's probably why we're a little bit behind the game on 
not actually getting to go buy a baby yoga yoda right now baby yoga <laughs> yeah I like, I like that too <laughs> yeah but it's uh i'm sure they will be coming but yeah i, I don't actually know the timetable of when, when those will be i was at a disney holiday party last night and uh, obviously a lot of people were talking about baby yoda and there is i'm told there is merch coming and coming soon but this Thank also God. reminds me of that time that the walking dead spoiled shane's death because it was a blurb on the back of a dvd that was sent out for pre-sale that's pre-orders. how it happened that's, that's how, how this that stuff happened, yeah. leaks yeah so yeah. Favreau was very thankful that that did not happen. How essential do you honestly think that this, the quote-unquote secrecy actually is to Baby Yoda as a thing? I mean, they obviously, they kept it secret, but it was designed basically to be secret for two days until the second episode. And the second episode is pretty much all Baby Yoda. You know, Baby Yoda's lifting things, Baby Yoda's eating a frog. It's, it's you know, all Baby Yoda all the time. Is it important that this was a surprise or was it just to show that they actually could do it (laughs) i think it was important to show it's a surprise i don't think this is a situation though like ray's parents or who is snoke where the only reason to watch is to find the mystery i don't think i don't think people really care to know the backstory so much we're gonna get some i'm sure but the fact that it's just there and cute is enough versus some of these other mysteries that they've set up that you know the last jedi totally threw away like that that's not what this is about. I think this is just about the cuteness having you know this grim guy. We thought this was going to be a grim dark show and it's a lot cuter than we expected and that's a lot it's a lot more fun than we expected. Which so. suddenly makes sense considering Disney Plus is all about appealing to families. So my question because you know my wife is a, a Star Wars nerd, how does Baby Yoda factor into these upcoming movies? Because it feels like, you know, and we can talk about this, you know, next but this is a TV show that is made by their film department, by Lucasfilm's film side, not the TV side. And we've never seen this kind of integration before. Right. You have John Favreau, one of the biggest filmmakers in the world, making this show. Now, the, the, the final episode of season one comes a week after episode nine hits theaters. So, you know, if that weren't the case, I'd say, hey, maybe Baby Yoda shows up in episode nine. But I feel like the fact that there's a season finale the, week, the next week we can't really spoil, oh, here's Baby Yoda as an adult in episode nine now. Um, so we don't really know if how this will factor in, but it's certainly possible that, hey, they're going to, they're trying to figure out what to do now that Benioff and Weiss have left. Maybe grown-up Baby Yoda is in, you know, the 2022 movie that Teenage they updated. Teenage Baby Yoda. Teenage, yeah, like they did Teen Groot. So why not Teen Baby teen, Yoda? Teen Baby Yoda? Or just, is it just Teen Yoda at that point? Teen Yoda. He's cool. He's rebellious. Yeah, I like, I like <laughs> that idea. He likes 13 Reasons Why. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. Uh... <laughs> oh, now, that, now it's going to end with like a suicide hotline website and phone number. Come on. The, the, oh. 13 Reasons Why is big with the kids. It's the a big whole, YA drama. The whole point was that it wasn't dark. And we were excited because it wasn't dark. But Baby Yoda's not dark yet, but maybe he gets dark as a teenager okay quick listens to a lot of like metallica aaron what is the mandalorian hiding under his face mask what is your guess is it just pedro pascal or is it something more complicated i think it's just pedro pascal what do you think though i don't know and my question is why do you hire pedro pascal if you're literally gonna have him walking around in a mask the entire time he you know because it's badass it's cool i don't know (laughs) does he sleep in the mask yeah, I, I think that it, he says... He's uncomfortable. Yeah, I think he says uh, that he has never taken it off. I don't know. I'm yeah. concerned about the whole thing, and I'm also concerned about the moment at which we're all going to turn on Baby Yoda, because it is 100% inevitable. Nothing stays pure and beloved forever. I grew up in a world in which we all thought that the Ewoks were cool and lovable, and if you you listen to popular opinion today, it's that they're pandering little furballs who almost destroyed the first three movies. Let me tell you, when I was six or seven, the Ewoks were nothing but cool. And, Same. And now I'm concerned because eventually we're going to turn on Baby Yoda and it's going to be awful. But yes, are, when are we going to turn on Baby Yoda? When do you think? Or do yeah. you think we will? And I already joked yeah. on Twitter it's going to involve old tweets, but still. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. He was a little bit racist when he was young. My God. He grew. <laughs> you know, it does seem like if there's a... You know, I think when we get the backstory, maybe that won't be satisfying. Like, we don't think Snoke is cool anymore because we didn't we, we, we didn't like what happened in The Last Jedi. So maybe it'll be something like that. Hopefully, though, Favreau, he usually is a pretty much a crowd-pleasing type of guy. So hopefully hopefully, I don't see that day. But you're, you're right. We're going to turn on him eventually. Mm, not turn on Baby Yoda. You mustn't. <laughs> 
Wow. Leslie has been holding that for the entire segment. And I think that's the only place to end. Thank you so much for joining us, Aaron. And thank you for joining us, Yoda. <laughs> thank you, guys. Number two. Up second this week, Apple is continuing to dig a hole for itself. This week, the morning show executive producers Carrie Aaron and Mimi Leader spoke at the Code Media Conference here in L.A. and were asked about the negative reviews for their show. The response was questionable, to say the least. Here's what exec producer and director Mimi Leader said. Quote, when those reviews came in, I didn't know what show they were watching. I thought they were nuts. I thought there were a lot of Apple haters who just wanted Apple to fail. The reviews felt like an attack on Apple. Aaron, meanwhile, said... Quote, when you see the reviews, they're looking at it from the whole business aspect. Like, what is Apple doing? It's kind of separate from us. Dan, this feels like some fake news bullshit. <laughs> Look, gotta, gotta tread lightly here. Even if you've set me up as if this is going to be some sort of Angry Dan segment, I, I really don't want it to be. Because the first thing to emphasize very clearly is, obviously, it's fine for them to lash out against reviews if that's what they want to do. I would add that it's not like The Morning Show is the first high-profile news show to get not-so-positive reviews. Um, I would also add that the reviews are mixed. Some are negative. Some are somewhat positive, etc. But that for whatever reason, the other, or most of the other, comparable high-profile shows getting mixed to negative reviews haven't been accompanied by quite the same Sour Grapes response. So it goes. I'd also like to note that it's an inherently reductive process. And so TV creators make a TV show and it's 10, 13 hours, whatever. And a critic writes a review and the review is going to be 600 words or it's going to be a thousand. And so already you're being reductive. And then whatever the review is, whether it's 600 or a thousand words, and then someone responds to it, it ends up being reduced to... Apple haters, or they're nuts, or Mark Duplass tweeted a couple weeks ago that a lot of the initial reviews were, I believe in his words, mean. You know, I think my review was more nuanced than that, but whatever. The, the, the disappointment, such as it is, is that if there's any group of people who is predisposed to being positive towards Mimi Leader and who comes in with a bias that's a positive bias, it would be your average TV critic. We have been championing Mimi Leader as one of the most important figures in the golden age of TV that we're either still in or just past for 20 plus years now. We're not the ones who gave negative reviews to pay it forward or deep impact were the ones who said that Mimi Leader was a absolutely crucial and pivotal force in The Leftovers and in great episodes of Homeland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So a little disappointing. You know, Mark Duplass, his career is built on critical acclaim. So it, there, there's a certain kind of coming from these people, there's a certain kind of sense of betrayal on their part. You know, you guys have liked me in the past. Why do you not now? But it also didn't help, Dan, <laughs> that they sent out, what was it, three episodes to critics? And then the review, and then they've also made it very hard for people to watch it. You had to go to Apple to see the first couple, and then, you know, th they released a screening site, like, super late after most people had already written and filed their reviews. And then the review embargo lifts, and then a few days later, they send out the entire season after the review embargo lifts. After the review embargo? It was almost like damage control. It was, it felt very much like damage control, and as opposed to simply giving critics all the episodes in advance. Okay, so again, I don't want to be perpetuating a cycle of sour grapes. However, when you have Mimi Leader ascribing critical response to some sort of critic groupthink, mindthink agenda, that kind of opens the door for me to go the other way and to actually look kind of introspectively at the purpose of this. I don't think there was some dictate that went down from the Apple TV plus people to showrunners on this show, not any of the other shows. You know, the other shows also got mixed reviews, but their showrunners aren't doing this. So that's fine. You know, I'm not saying that anyone said, go out there and blast the critics. That's ridiculous. On the other hand, I would suggest that probably executives at other networks, publicity people at other networks have incomparable situations told the talent, you can't win by going to war with the critics. That being a true thing, you can't. I don't think that dictate went down to the Apple TV creatives. I don't think anyone said, don't do this. So they have. To me, what it feels like is Apple attempting to spin the narrative 
in a way that allows them to be an underdog in a way that they never could be under any other circumstance. Apple, Apple TV, the most expensive TV show in television history fronted by a group of A-list actors. These things were never going to be an underdog. So they came out as this behemoth with high expectations and the reviews were mixed. Well, suddenly it's now a chance for the morning show and for Apple TV to get to have a little chip on their shoulder, to get to be an underdog, to get to say, oh, the big bad critics, because, you know, we're all out here, you know, in our fancy yachts, you know, typing on our golden keyboards. Mine, of course, being an Apple, because literally every technical thing I own is an Apple. So, yeah, it's it's basically them getting to play victim and getting to play underdog in a way that they were never under any circumstances going to be. And that allows people to suddenly make championing the morning show and championing Apple TV plus into supporting the little guy, which is ridiculous because it's still Apple and it's still the biggest and most expensive show in TV history. And so, still the big one of the biggest companies, if not the biggest company in the world. Yeah. So but they were never going to have this opportunity. Otherwise, they were always going to be the big dogs and they wanted, I think, to come in and be treated as the scrappy little guy compared to Netflix and compared to the other entities that already had their place set. And no one was going to let them get away with that. You know, no one was going to let them say, oh, we're just we're new at this. We don't know how to do this because everyone was like, no, you're Apple. You know how to do everything. And it's also the TV <laughs> department that they've carefully constructed is literally all experienced and seasoned studio and network executives. Zach and Jamie um, at the top spent decades at, at Sony TV. Literally all of their the people that they hired, you know, there's a couple of people that used to run networks that work over there. Yeah. So so basically, all all I'm saying is it's a it's an attempt at reframing the narrative. I'm not taking it personally. I know that my review says very specifically the problems I had with the show and that I have kept watching the show and that my review very clearly said by episode three, it's becoming a much better show, a show that's interesting and worth watching. And the subsequent episodes I've watched have not become great. But they continue to be roughly in the vein of the third episode where I find it entertaining and really erratic and kind of a little bit tone challenged and whatever. But I like watching the actors at work. I thought that the the scene last week with uh, Jennifer Aniston and Billy Crudup singing Sondheim together, that was just a great scene of TV. I, I loved that scene. There were several scenes in the episode that made me cringe, but I loved that scene. So, no, I, I'm not going to take it personally because I understand that it's an attempt to reframe and respin a narrative. But that being said, it still hurts a tiny bit, but whatever. It's OK. I, I understand. You got to do it. See, not angry, Dan. Ha ha ha. I'm totally philosophical. Everyone's just doing what they got to do. And I have to say that my review of The Morning Show was not a review of Apple and its business products. It was a review of the show. Very fair response, Dan. Thank you for for doing what you do best, my friend. And also, you, you, if you want to feel like hearing more from Carrie Aaron, please go back and check out our November first interview with her. Dan was very fair during that as well, too. So, up next, it's time to go to the mailbag. Number three. As I say every week, we love to hear from you guys, and if you guys have questions, we frankly love to answer your questions. So you can reach us at TV's Top Five, the number five at THR.com. This week, we have some good questions. Up first, listener at OutcastPod asked us on Twitter and then sent us the uh, question as well, where the queer content was on all of these new streaming platforms. Leslie? Well, there's not a lot of it yet. There's one notable exception over on HBO Max. There's a four-part docuseries. It's called Equal. That's exec produced by two... Uh, uh, these I'm not sure if you've heard of them before. It was Greg Berlanti and Jim Parsons. I heard through the grapevine that it, it took some time to find a home for that, which is crazy considering that Berlanti and Parsons both are two of the most important people at, at Warner and their streaming service picked it up. But a lot of these other platforms really haven't gotten to the LGBTQ programming yet. And I think a lot of it, too, is, you know, look, they, they need to figure out what direction these platforms are going, who their audience is, what the demos that they're, they're targeting and program to that. And then I think once they, they build up the slate, then they're going to start to kind of take a step back and say, what are we missing? Where else do we need to go? Because right now, you know, when you build a platform, obviously you're starting with a blank slate. So you need to, to construct that all from scratch. And when you do that, you, you got to start big. You know, look at how Netflix started. It was with Kevin Spacey and House of Cards. At the time, the idea of this established movie star doing a TV show, especially one from David Fincher for an unknown platform, was unheard of. 
you know, look at how Apple just launched, right? Morning Show, Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Aniston, huge movie stars, Aniston doing her first TV role since Friends. You know, that that's how you start. And I think eventually then once they have a, the backbone of the service, that then they'll start to kind of diversify their offerings. I think there are also there are additional examples. Uh, the main character in Dickinson, that being poet Emily Dickinson, is very clearly presented as I don't know if it's as black and white as she's a lesbian or if we just accept that she has a fluid sexuality but I, I think they're saying that she's gay and so that's you know the main character of that show and that show is the most acclaimed of Apple TV Plus's initial round of shows and then you have Disney Plus doing the Love, Simon TV series, right? True. So yeah. that's that's another thing that's on the horizon. On the other hand, though, if you look at the initial round of things, for example, one of the things that I do actually find striking about the first few episodes of Encore on Disney Plus is I feel like if you did a kind of objective version of that show, getting together casts of musicals a decade, 15, 20 years later, I would say a predominant narrative in almost all of them, almost invariably, would be the kid who was gay in high school and either hadn't come out at the time or only came out in his theater community because that was the place he felt safe. And that that would be a primary narrative for one of these shows. And, and there's one character in the first couple episodes for whom that's his story. And even that's not pushed in any meaningful way. So definitely it felt to me like that could have been a bigger narrative. Maybe that's simply an example of, you know, the first couple episodes who they happen to, you know, find. And that's not necessarily their fault. I assume it will come up more, but it was the thing I was scratching my head about. No, I, I think you'll see more of it. Uh, it's just representation is sporadic. There's a, there's a gay main character on, on the morning show, just probably tertiary the the person who thinks he should have the anchor job but does not is feeling as if being african-american and gay is what is preventing him from getting the anchor chair and it could be as well on the other hand he's been basically pushed to the corner because there are just too many stars on that show and there's no way to focus on actual meaningful storytelling in some of the corners because there are so many areas so i i think it's it's definitely a conversation that's definitely a conversation we're going to have going forward Listener Taryn emails to ask if it's worth watching a show that's already been canceled, specifically Lodge 49, Patriot, Sneaky Pete, and Toucan Birdie. Dan, what do you say? I, I think it's a good question, and I think it relates to an ongoing conversation that we have all the time just with people when you're talking to them where it becomes the question of should I, you know, should I commit to this? And it, it comes at every stage of the process. A new show is good. People say, ah, eh, but it sounds a little nichey it's if it's going to be canceled after one season i don't want to watch it and then it becomes what the social contract of television is where if people don't watch then the shows die and it becomes self-perpetuating and that's a problem the specific question that taryn is asking is about shows that we already know are, are done so shows people didn't check out and my answer is almost always that good tv is good tv and that it's not necessarily destination driven and that the pleasure I got out of the first 12 episodes of a 13 episode season of a one season show is more important than the episode at the end where it didn't necessarily resolve in exactly the way I wanted it to. And I'm disappointed. So I would never tell anyone not to watch Terriers, for example, just ah, because so it didn't get a second season and just because the first season does end at a position which sets it up for a second season but i would still say you should watch terriers i would still say that you should watch wonderfalls i would still say that you should watch freaks and geeks i would still say you should watch my so-called life firefly my so-called life so many of these shows so of the shows that are specifically here sneaky pete i always thought was sort of an erratic show so watch an episode or two of it if you're entertained Go for it. Otherwise, don't. But that's just because of what the show is, not because of how it ended. Ditto with Patriot, which is very much a sensibility show. And so our late colleague, Tim Goodman, not really late because he's not really dead, but he's no longer our colleague. He would tell you, of course, you should watch Patriot because it's a great show. I would tell you, watch a couple episodes. If it's your kind of thing, watch it. I would tell you the same thing about Lodge 49. Absolutely watch it. Am I disappointed it didn't get exactly the ending it wanted? Of course I am. But... 
I really loved these episodes of TV. Tuca and Birdie, I'm angry Netflix canceled that yeah, one. that one didn't make any sense. It's just ridiculous. I do not understand why Netflix canceled this show, but these episodes are great episodes. So, you know, everyone knows for themselves if they're the kind of person who gets actively angry when they don't get closure. You know, if you did not get the ending that was supposed to be intended by the showrunner, you get angry and you don't want to be part of it. But if you simply enjoy the journey of a television show, and I will always say that TV, because of its duration and its process, is inherently journey-driven more than destination-driven, these were good shows, and you should enjoy as much as you want of them. And if you maybe want to skip the finale so you don't get the cliffhanger that was never resolved, do that. That seems like a weird way to watch TV to me. Yeah, and also at the same time, maybe if you do finish the season, a lot of these showrunners, especially on, on these these shows that get canceled out of nowhere, a lot of them will do press and say, here's what would have happened. You know, I still miss Pitch, you know, from Fox, obviously. You, you might know, know this. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm typecast. I get it. I like Leslie likes baseball. We know. No, um, you just talk about your love for Pitch fairly frequently. It was, a, it was a good show. You could see the network notes all over the screen. But, you know, one of the showrunners did an interview with EW that, that explained what happened. I clicked on that instantly. You know, like, of course we want to know. But that's the, the nice part about the peak TV world is that there are a lot of reporters out there myself included, who will do exit interviews for, with showrunners about what would have happened. So if just because the show ended and, the, and it left things up in the air, you can probably Google and find a lot of the what would have happened stories. And also in the social media world, these people love hearing that you like their shows, even if they got canceled. Sean Ryan is always happy when people tell him that uh, they loved Terriers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, these are a lot of these are really good shows. And once you get away from the idea that the destination might be one that you never reach, there's still shows you should watch if you like. Enjoy the journey just the same. And our last question this week comes from listener Mitch in Canada, which is a very big country and not a specific destination. Mitch emails asking how international markets like Canada may or may not affect TV deals. Leslie, this sounds like a you question. Well, a lot of them, they, it definitely does. So we've talked extensively about Designated Survivor um, and all of its showrunners. What was it? Now I'm forgetting because we haven't talked about it in a while. But it was five, five showrunners, three, three seasons. Two, two networks. networks, two studios. Yeah. But that was a huge show that, that continued because it had very, very strong international sales. The same was true for, for a show like Quantico, which was huge international, really big international hit. And when you sell a show internationally, it provides obviously a bigger revenue stream, which helps these networks and studios break even on, on the undertaking and even turn into profit. The same, the same is true for streaming deals. Shows like Dynasty on the CW, which I, I can't remember how many cast members are left from the original podcast pilot because they keep changing cast members and changing showrunners. But that is basically a format that is sold all over the world because it's got instant name recognition. The reason that show exists and continues to exist on the CW isn't because of its linear ratings. It's I think it might be the lowest rated TV show on broadcast, but it's because it's sold all over the world. And that's a hugely profitable show. And then you add streaming rights in, into it and it's and it, it just compounds that. And the same is true for, for shows on, on streaming platforms. You know, look, Netflix is a global business. So if you if you've got a Netflix original show and maybe and now obviously they're making a lot of local language stuff. But if, if there's a U.S. show that's got a big international reach, they're going to keep that thing going. Our next segment, of course, is our showrunner spotlight. Number four. Joining us this week is Peter Morgan, the acclaimed playwright and Oscar-nominated screenwriter behind The Queen and Frost Nixon. Morgan has written or co-written all 30 episodes of Netflix's Emmy-winning drama The Crown, which returned to continue the saga of Queen Elizabeth II in its third season this week. Welcome, Peter. Pleasure. Nice to be here. Let's start from the beginning. You know, the plan for The Crown was always for it to run six seasons and recast it after every two how much pressure did, it, did you feel when it came time to finally actually do that, considering how much critical and award season recognition you got for the first two seasons? Well, I mean, first of all, it was three seasons, actually. And then when I think when we first went to talk to people about, about the show, I'd imagined the Queen, who's sort of approximately 70 year right? but I really only want to dramatise about 60 years, could be split into 20-year segments. And I thought, well, let's just do one as a young woman, one as a middle-aged woman, one as an older woman. And it felt natural to me that you'd be looking at three different actors to play those, uh, to play the part. 
And then as I, as, as I started getting into it, you suddenly realised that there wasn't enough time to tell the story, you know, in 10 episodes or eight or whatever one season would be. And that it then became two. But I, I only say that because I don't want you to think that I was audacious enough to go somewhere and ask for a six-season pitch. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, that, you know, that uh, uh, I really never imagined that, and and barely imagined it getting recommissioned. You know, to even do the middle-aged, as it were, part. But it just seems to have worked out. And now that you've recast everyone after the first two, when it came time to finally cast new actors here, did you feel a pressure? Did you get any feedback from Netflix or Sony or Left Bank? No feedback. Uh, uh, I think they, you know, they trusted us. And, and I had a really wonderful casting director, well, two actually, Nina Gold and Robert Stern. And when you have really good people like that, just get out of their way and let them get on with doing their work. And, you know, Netflix has been as good as its word in that regard they, they've been fantastic partners I mean and when I say fantastic partners it's not just because they stay out of the way although that is good <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it's it makes everyone step up I think if they feel that they're being trusted and have a point to prove and and, and you know it's interesting that you were saying how many showrunners you've talked to and the, the idea that writers are suddenly being trusted to lead and uh, you know rather than be hidden away or Traditionally, I, I was reading some memoirs of um, screenwriters in the, in, in the 40s and 50s and the bitterness, you know, you know the, how they, they were so angry at the way they were constantly being, I don't know, marginalised or disregarded and, and, and their work was just being, you know, just rewritten. And, and, and I just thought, God, this is a very brief, this is a lucky moment and, and you can't, you know, that makes me take my responsibilities seriously too because I, I don't want to give people... The excuse to say you can't trust writers, you know, with, with budgets, with scale, with leadership, you know, um, that they belong hidden away in attics, you know, <laughs> as dysfunctional sociopaths. <laughs> <laughs> well, is this a situation where you literally had, like, lists of people for each of the three main roles? Or was it kind of, here's my top choice, if that doesn't work, move on to, you know, who knows what comes next? How many people did you have in your mind as you looked at those three main roles? Sometimes you you get lucky and, and you have an idea and you agree on that, you know, and, and certainly that was the case with Olivia, both uh, Olivia Coleman, Olivia, uh, but, you know, Nina Gold and I both had a list of one and and it was sort of, you know, who do you think it should be? And she said, no, I'm not going to say who do you think it should be? And, and, and we did a sort of rock, paper, scissors and both said Olivia at the same time, you know, and with Claire, we went definitely went through more of a... a you know, that was more of an exploration. We met a number of people and uh, until, it, you know, Claire rose to the top through her own brilliance. And it became, I think one, you know, we'd started off thinking, what about, what about? And and we ended up, I mean, like everybody, I think, you know, we had the same experience that maybe you guys did by thinking, wow, you know, this is an extraordinary, she, she really owned it in an extraordinary, confident and brilliant way. And with regard to the, Third part, if we if if we go that far, that you know that's not a decision that's been made yet. So okay, if Olivia was a list of effectively one, what did that mean? The conversations with her had to be like, you know, what was her response when you went out to her? What questions did she have? It it was also it was actually the whole thing was uh, it's very similar to the the brevity of the list. It was that I was given her telephone number and uh, her agent had warned her that I would be calling her, and I called her and I said. Look, I um, I just wanted, and she went yes, <laughs> and that was it. So, uh, so actually, the process of working out that it should be her, and the process of her accepting to do it, uh, could all have been done within twelve seconds or something. You know, it was, it was, but that's that's not normal. Yeah, that's very, I was going to say that's very, very rare. <laughs> it's really rare, and 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 by the way, the process of working with her has continued to be exactly as uncomplicated as that. You know, it's been that delightful. Well, it's funny because you've now worked with all of these actresses playing the same role, whether it's Helen Mirren, Claire Foy, Olivia Colman, Kristen Scott Thomas, etc., all playing Queen Elizabeth II. What kind of different questions do those very different actresses bring to you about this one singular, somewhat mysterious woman? I think all those actors have a different process. But now that I'm thinking about your question, which, funny enough, I've never been asked before, 
And I've been asked pretty much every question about the Queen. <laughs> and this one, you know, actually, the, the, you know, the way in which the three of them came to the part is different. But what, what I noticed as time went on with all of them is that they became less, I mean, not that they started off neurotic, not at all, <laughs> but they became, I mean, anything but, by the way, but, but, but they became less so and that a lot of the aspects of her character started filtering into them. I, I, I noticed that Helen Mirren seemed to grow an inch. That, and, and, yeah, you know, because it's an extraordinary, this is an extraordinary woman. And her, her steadfastness and her durability and, uh, you know, the, 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 the responsibility and the sense of duty that, you know, that, that she's embodied, regardless of what your views may be about the monarchy. And uh, I think all of us may have questions. This one is undeniably good at the job, <laughs> right? And, and that has, in some way, also connected each of the three to each of the three actors and it's been interesting to observe how not just a sense of responsibility but a sense of appreciation has kind of filtered into all of them yeah in a larger sense you guys cover a lot of ground every season how much research do, do you do for every season and how long does that take you especially when you look at some of the, the benchmarks throughout the season that you know you want to cover well it starts with okay so the first thing I, we don't have a writer's room and and that's partly because it seems that in this age of uh, uh, television abundance, every writer has their own show, if not two shows or three shows or four shows. And you, there aren't... You There's someone who has 21, Greg Berlanti. Right? Yeah. Well, 21's not nearly enough. Greg, <laughs> Greg strikes me as a slouch. <laughs> uh, how, how, how do you do that? I, I, I mean... Um, Anyway, it, that's extraordinary. I think of this job as being five full-time jobs. So if you, that, that means Mr. Bellanti has 110 full-time jobs. And, you know, it's, it's extra, extraordinary. So on this show, I, I don't have a writer's room, but we very much have a researcher's room and, and, and a script department room. And um, there are somewhere in between, at any given time, there's somewhere between eight and sort of 13 or 14 people working on the show. Wow. And, and I, I do think now that we may have the single biggest book collection and, and, and archive collection outside of the BBC, perhaps on outside the British Library on this subject. <laughs> and we, you know, so what, there is this constant push and pull between what it is that I hope happened, what it is that actually happened, and the way that you make, I suppose, you put the dots down on a piece of paper and then you want to try and make sure that the dots which represent things that actually happened and things for which there, there is clear historical record and the act of the imagination that I have to bring to it in order to, you know, to make inferences, to make assumptions uh, and to try and create a, a, a line that flows through those dots. I feel like I asked you this in the first season, but I'm curious for this season also. When you look at the events in the third season, which ones are you most confident you got completely, totally right? And which would you assume probably are the biggest flights of fancy on your part? Well, I mean, before I answer that, I want to say that I, I would hope that flights of fancy, which I don't think, because uh, uh, I, don't, I don't think you were being pejorative. Oh, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I think that... Actually, sometimes, particularly with this show, and particularly, you know, there are a lot of royal historians or, or, you know, that have come out of the woodwork and are trying to, as it were, make a make a living and publish their own books based on the corrections of the errors in the crown. And very often, these aren't errors. These are these are conscious decisions. And and where we have, what I would say is, on every occasion, we do know what really happened. And if I depart from that, it is a conscious decision because maybe I'm trying to, there's some sort of compression required, or I'm making an assumption where we know that this happened, we know that that happened. But again, you know, I would say that because of the extraordinary sensitivity of it, the episode about the disaster at Aberfan is the one that it really stays the closest to public record and the one in which we were most conscious of not wanting to up you know to to cause upset it's, an, it's still you know 60 years uh, well not quite 60 but 50 years on it's still an extraordinary sensitive subject 
that involved an extraordinary amount of consultation with with the local community and still a whole outreach with them and we showed it to them for the first time just a week ago and thank thankfully that went really well i do want to talk about the season three finale you know there is a suicide attempt in in the finale that was never something that was ever confirmed was that how did you approach that and and that and the research around that and did you you know walk us through that that episode it is actually a matter of record that princess margaret who you're talking about struggled with depression and certainly struggled with her her, her personal happiness It, it was a very acrimonious and turbulent divorce and marriage as well you know before and Actually, I wish that I had my guys with me now and who could tell me exactly what the sources were. But this was definitely not something that I made up. I mean, I wouldn't dream of it. But we're, we're absolutely certain that this happened. And we're, you know, we know the medication that she was taking. And so in, in, in that regard, but that's very sensitive. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm curious, when you know what the time period is for a season, how quickly do the eight or 10 kind of signpost events immediately jump out to you? How often do you try breaking a story around an event and finally you just can't bring it together and you have to scrap it and move on to something That's else? That's such a good question. That, but, well, I mean, it's such a specific question. There's probably an audience of three people who are interested in that. <laughs> but but I really am because that is what my life is about. I mean, you, you so that question entirely encapsulates what I wrestle with on a daily basis. And... Uh, and I've never been asked that one before either. Um, so if sort of the entirety of my work as a writer is 100%, I would say 70% of my work <laughs> is is taken up with wrestling with precisely that, where I map out what the timeline is of a season. And, and I then start the pull and push where I start, you know, there are things that immediately leap out. And I think I always think it's like running a bath where not a bath in America, by the way, a bath, a bath in a, a, a bath in an English country house where where the, where the pipes are so old that what comes out is this horrible <laughs> rust colour. And, 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 and after a while, the water that clears and becomes transparent. And then you think, well, I might actually want to take a bath in that um uh, and it's the same with my ideas they are terrible at first you know at first the first knee-jerk ideas you have when you think of a decade are shaped by all the reductive nonsense that we do when we reduce a decade to its barest least interesting components and then we pack it up and wrap it up and call it history and uh, of course it, it it's a crime of omission And you have to then go look at others. At the same time, you do still need that decade to be recognisable as that decade uh, by not going too obscure. And so that's what I try and do. I try and find both a handful of the sort of um, the things that we would look for in in that particular. So, for example, I'll give you an example that, you know, when when the blackouts happened uh, as a consequence of the miners' strike and so forth, and uh, in Edward Heath's time as prime minister... You know, which I lived through. I came back from school every day and I would be sitting in darkness and there'd be candlelight and it's absolutely extraordinary. We had supper at candlelight. The schools were in candles. You know, hospitals did operations by candlelight. You know, that's what it was like in England in the early 70s. And so I thought, well, people now will have forgotten that. I don't want them to forget that. But that isn't remembered when you look back over the 70s, right? And Aberfan, for example, had been lost Hmm. The lunar mission, the Apollo mission, I wanted to put that in, but only because it had such a surprising connection (laughs) with Buckingham Palace. You know, the idea that the Queen had been one of a handful of human beings that had been asked to leave a message on a green silicone disc which the astronauts left on the moon surface. I suddenly thought, well, that's irresistible. How can (laughs) can you not? And that the astronauts came to Buckingham Palace on their world tour and that they were sick with colds and quite unimpressive was the takeaway from everyone who met them that they were of course they're unimpressed they've just come back they're exhausted so so it's it's that you know and then hopefully finding a whole lot of things that have been forgotten by history you guys are currently in production on season four but i wonder how much are you already looking ahead to the recast that comes next and what signposts that you want to hit and what hopefully and successfully obviously you know, I think Netflix would love to have two more or even beyond that. Basically, how far along are you when it comes to thinking about a new cast and the signposts that you want to hit in what could be your final two seasons? I mean, I love it 
we're, we're two days away from the launch of season three, and you're, they haven't even appeared yet, and you're asking who's recasting, who, who's replacing them. It's a tough business in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, but I mean, do you uh, have like, do you have a, a wish list? I mean, I, 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 I okay. So it's a, it's a, it's a little indelicate because what you can't do is you can't go to the actors' agents and say, we want to approach such and such because I haven't had a green light yet, and and so, but at the same time. I agree with you. I think I think Netflix are interested, and, and and like like we all, like your first question. You know, we did start with this idea of all three. So, of course, the hope is that there will be a final instalment. And I have had some ideas, but I'm slightly stuck because I can't really go to anybody mm. until I I can do that. Particularly now, because the older you get, I think if they were young untried and untested actors, you probably could start that process on a speculative basis. But you can't with serious professionals, you know, of experience. And their agents are ferocious and wouldn't let, you know. So right now, it's a blank sheet. It's sort of a ghoulish question, and you can interpret it however you want to. But how important is it that you have an end to this story? Very important for my health and for my sanity. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's hard work. I love it. I think that... If your question is, are you going to wait for her to die and then write that? That could be an interpretation of the question, to be sure. <laughs> um, uh, no, uh, because I, I, you know, I'm nervous about writing without a significant period of time in between the events and, and, and the writing of it. Because if you write too soon after something has happened, or even con contemporaneously... It necessarily is journalism. That's not to cast aspersions on journalism, but but it's a it's a totally different medium. It's like comparing, you know, I don't know, music with dance. You know, it, it, uh, journalism and, and and dramatic creative writing are, are just two different things. And I personally have really relished writing about industrial conflict in the 1970s and seeing, for example, the analogies with Brexit. And seeing a country divided in two about, you know, when it came to the miners' strike, and yet how it resonates with a country that's divided in two now. And so I think when an audience and you, the writer, can, can make those sort of unintentional parallels, when something has effortless sort of metaphorical value, you can't do that if what you're writing about is happening right under your nose. You need at least a decade, in my view, to separate yourself from the events that you're so writing about. So does that imply that the last episode of The Crown is an event that has already taken place or that you're planning on taking a multi-year hiatus at some point more than just the two years you took between two and three? <laughs> uh, I, I would say the answer is is the former. So that is to say, I think, I've, I think we, something's already happened that I think is the end. But you can't ever say what the end is because things change and, and, and the minute things change, historically, you, you, you begin to have to respond in some shape or form, even in your thinking. So I have an idea, but it's only an idea. Yeah. You know, we also like to cover a lot of the business end of uh, the industry. You just signed a very large, what I'm told, a film and TV overall deal to do new projects with Netflix. You know, look, the crown, as you said, is such an incredible undertaking and an, and an achievement in and of itself. But in the back of your mind, you have other ideas for series and films that you would like to take on for Netflix. Uh, I mean, I have, you know, all of us, you know, writers and and cre creative artists. We, 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 you know, we're as, that's what we are. We're full of ideas and hopes and dreams. And and I have a whole lot of unreleased prisoners you know, in my head, <laughs> that I'm dying to have break out. And, but the fact is, I am doing this thing. And, and, and I do think that, unlike Mr. Belanti, you know, I, I, I do think doing one thing is about all I can do. And I envy his talent, but I'm a one project guy. So if, if this is what I'm doing, particularly something this size, uh, I, it it gets all my attention. Well, do you have the, the kind of delegating instinct in you at all? Like, would you want to, if you had someone whose voice you really loved, kind of help usher them along, serve in a mentor role at all? Yeah, I'd be, I mean, I'd be, you know, and, and do we do that. But it, it's a slightly different thing, which is that I, um, and it, it, it's, it's not to the exclusion of what you're saying, but I do think that People take their people on a show like this. One of the, one of the challenges on a show like this is is to create a culture on the show that gets where everybody 
is able to do their best work. And part of that, they, it's a bit, you know, the culture is set by the guy at the top or the woman at the top. You know, it, it's just natural. And if the showrunner is also doing other things, I think everyone else will also feel it's legitimate to do other things or think about other things. And the minute they do that, their focus on this will be compromised. And so I have to set that example and, and, and put all those other hopes and dreams to one side, really, and, you know, make this show be the sort of the everything of all that. Yeah, we always like to end these wonderful showrunner spotlight interviews with the same question. What are you watching right now? Uh, I just finished Succession, you know, because... A popular answer. Yeah, yeah, I just finished that because that was the one that has most recently finished, I think, and and enjoyed that enormously. And I mean, I finished that two days ago, so uh, that's really very recent and current. Well, Succession is interesting because it's a a Brit's perspective on kind of American media culture and sort of American power structures. Do you have a take on kind of American culture that you can imagine yourself doing someday like that? Uh, No, I I found that I love being in America and I love hanging with Americans. But I feel I would always feel that someone else could write it it better. (laughs) And I, I think what you have to do really is find something where you think, I kind of really trust myself here. I've tried in the course of my career to write contemporary American culture. I think it's easier, like when I wrote Richard Nixon and Frost Nixon, I found that easier because, you know, his register and the way he spoke in the 1960s and 70s was was closer to British English, you know. Uh, But the modern contemporary American idiom is something that I feel Americans would write much better than me. And therefore I'd be constantly second-guessing myself and constantly imagining other writers nailing it and me flailing around. So I will probably always write about Europeans. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Peter. Pleasure. The third season of The Crown is now streaming on Netflix. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with The Critics' Corner. Since we're going to be off for the Thanksgiving holiday, Dan, let's go over two weeks worth of programming and maybe you can weigh in on what the kids should be watching over their Thanksgiving break. This week, the broadcasters are in repeats, but the streamers are all in. New arrivals include Dolly Parton's Heartstrings and Merry Happy Whatever on Netflix, which is really the name of a show, Merry Happy Whatever. Over at Amazon, they have The Feed. Apple has M. Night Shyamalan's Servant and DC Universe launches Harley Quinn. And then next week, Fox tries its holiday event programming with the Moody's. The final season of Vikings begins on history. Netflix bows B-Wars. And Tell Me a Story returns for its second season on CBS All Access. What you got? Phew. That is a, that's a lot. A, that's a lot of show, and I'm not sure exactly how many of them are all that good. Honestly, the best thing on TV that you could watch next week and the week after as well is College Behind Bars on PBS, which is produced by Ken Burns, but it's Ken Burns' frequent co-director, co-producer Lynn Novak. It's a solo directoral effort from her. It is a four-hour documentary series about a college program operating out of maximum and medium security prisons in New York State, and it is wildly empathetic, emotional, and smart. You get immediately invested in the characters it introduces you to. It causes you to reconceive and rethink the way you approach, really, the prison industrial complex, which I'm sure you've also already been rethinking. But it really gives a perspective on the importance of education in the prison systems and why it is worth whatever money could possibly be put into it. It's it's really powerful and emotional stuff. So I recommend that. I remind you again, you should listen to last week's podcast with an interview with the showrunners of Harley Quinn, because Harley Quinn is really, really funny. So that's the thing you might want to check out. But that's only if you have DC Universe. Uh, The following week, you have M. Night Shyamalan's The Servant, as you say, even though he's only an executive producer on it, but we still call it M. Night Shyamalan's because we're a little bit lazy about such things. He's a producer and directed two of the episodes, but it's actually created by a British showrunner, uh, Tony Basgallop, and it is creepy, and it is a little bit twisty 
and I think some people are really going to dig it. It's an interesting, slightly different structure because it's a half-hour weekly thriller series, which is not something that we've seen all that much. And I don't honestly know how it's going to play on a weekly basis because in some cases the episodes really do feel kind of short on plot and short on things other than creepiness. Whereas if you watch it all in one sitting, it's a little bit like a padded five-hour movie. I watched it in that way, and it's like a padded five-hour movie. But on the other hand, I think it will really it will really work for some viewers. I can tell you I've watched to the end, and I wasn't all that satisfied with the end, but I think some people will, will dig where that show goes. And I'm sure that Dolly Parton's Heartstrings is terrific. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Dan and I will be taking Thanksgiving off and back at it December 6th, which will coincidentally, Dan, be TV's Top 5's first birthday. And we will have a great showrunner spotlight interview with Michelle Spellman from Apple's Truth Be Told on that episode. Be sure to subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a nice little review. People like to read those things, apparently. You can also come talk to us on Twitter. We're always very happy to hear your feedback, questions, comments, concerns on the Twitter. And as I may have mentioned already multiple times in this podcast, if you have questions for future mailbag segments, the podcast email address is tvstop5 at thr.com. Until two weeks from now, Leslie. Happy Thanksgiving, my friend. I am so thankful for you and your friendship. Aww. <laughs> Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.